Amen. I appreciate it, Garrett. Appreciate it, band. Uh, good morning, Mercy Fellowship. Hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Curtis. I serve here at the church as an elder in training. Honored to be preaching this morning to you. And uh, we were bummed, me, Ruth and I were bummed, we missed uh, having uh, Jeff Potts here last week. I, I believe that he served you guys well, listened to the sermon while we were rolling through the hills of uh, eastern Washington, where there's nothing, by the way. If you've never been, don't go. There's nothing. There's a reason why everyone at Wazoo gets drunk, because there's nothing else to do while you're there. Uh, but no, happy that Jeff served our church uh, this last Sunday. Happy to be preaching again. Uh, we are in the Sermon on the Mount sermon series on the Upside Down Kingdom. If you've got a Bible, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And uh, just to pose a question to you to begin, how did you grow up? When you think about your home life, what was that like? Uh, for you, for me, I'll just go ahead and, and tell you uh, how I grew up. I've already told you guys this before, but I, I played some group sports, but really the thing that captured my attention, my affection, my devotion growing up was skateboarding. I loved skateboarding. At the ripe age of 10, I accepted Tony Hawk as Lord and Savior of my life. I was committed to it. I was absolutely committed to it. And like all things, whether in sports or, or music, you try to find someone to imitate. Try to find someone that you could go ahead and follow after. And there was a skateboarder I really liked. His name was Nick Trapasso. And I liked his style. I liked the way he dressed. I idolized this guy. And uh, anyways, he eventually became pro. A couple years later, uh, some filmers did A Day in the Life of Nick Trapasso. How does this skateboarder, this pro skateboarder, live, so to speak? And uh, he was living off of a $60,000 salary from all of his sponsors because skateboarders don't make any money. And he bought a two-bedroom, one-bath house, and it became a skate rat house, which means that he invited 10 of his friends to move into this 900-square-foot home, so to speak. And so the video footage is that there's just bodies everywhere in the house. Lights are dim. The stack of dishes in the kitchen is, like, all the way up to the ceiling. And I remember seeing this as a kid and thinking, you know what? That's what I want to do with my life. That looks so good, you know? Because what do they do? What they do is they skate all day and they party all night. They skate all day, they party all night. And it's like, yeah, if I could do that on loop for the rest of my life, I would love to do that. The thing, though, church, is this. I was 12 at that point, and my brain hadn't fully formed. And so I thought that was a good idea. And so a few years after that, I was like, yeah, I probably shouldn't do that. It's a horrible idea. But here's the tension I felt, okay? The tension I felt was this. In the skateboarding world, I saw this careless lifestyle, this lawless lifestyle, this free lifestyle, and it looked so appealing to me. And yet, the tension I had back home was there was laws at home. There was structure at home. My mom, she was a good mom. She had rules as far as making sure I ate the right food, making sure I did my chores, making sure I went to bed at time, on time, uh, such things as that. And I, you know, I look back now so grateful for the way I was raised because it, it's made me to who I am today. And I know a lot of friends that I grew up skating with didn't fare the same as me. In fact, last year, summer, I was preaching at a church in Seattle and I, I got in contact with one of my friends, his name is Brian, and he lives in a skate rat house in Seattle. And it's like a group of 10 guys and they've got a huge half pipe in their garage. And I was like, Brian, you made it, dude. This is our dream. And uh, he hates his life. He really hates where he's living. So it's not as good as it, we thought it once was. But how did you grow up, though, right? How did you grow up? If you grew up with good parents or guardians, obviously there would have been some sort of rules or structure in the house. And these rules were created for your flourishing. And so you parents, you do this, right? You grandparents, you did this once upon a time with your kids. You 
create laws in the house for the purpose of having flourishing take place in your kids' lives. And when it comes, church, the reason why I say all of this is when it comes to our Heavenly Father, I want you to think of it exactly like that. Our Heavenly Father, he's, he's given us laws. He's given us instruction, not for our punishment, but for our flourishing, for our success in this world. Uh, you know, there's a problem with evangelicalism primarily in America, and, and it was this. They would always talk about how to get to heaven, but they never talked how to make heaven come to earth. And that's a biblical idea, church. Coming up in the Sermon on the Mount in a couple weeks, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. And part of the Lord's Prayer is this, praying our Father in heaven, hey, may your, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so evangelicalism was really good about getting people to heaven, but not about how getting heaven to earth. And one of the ways of which we get heaven to earth is this, through the law, through the instruction that Jesus has given us. And this is meant, church, for our flourishing, not for our demise. It's meant to, to, to produce character in us, produce holiness within us. And so we're going to be looking at the law today. And just let me clarify before we go, because I don't want you to miss this. Um, we do not, listen to me, church, we do not follow God's law to earn his favor. You can't do it. It's impossible. The only way that you have favor with God is in faith and trust in Jesus. And once you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you are then adopted into the family of God. And once you're part of the family of God, well, the family has rules. They have laws. They have structures for our flourishing. So, all that being said, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, we're going to look at the law of retaliation. Jesus, he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What's Jesus talking about here? Now, the first point I'd like to make to us, church, in light of this is um, culture nor religion are always right. Jesus, in his first section right here, he's referring to an Old Testament law, and it's a, it was an Old Testament law of retaliation. It's found in Exodus 21. And it has this repetitive narrative uh, uh, structure to it that you already saw. It was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and it would continue on with this. It would say a hand for a hand, and eventually it would get to a life for a life. And the idea behind that was this. The same pain that you inflict on someone else would be inflicted towards you. The purpose for this then, church, was this, that the, uh, the punishment would match the crime. So such laws like these existed. But the whole reason I believe Jesus is, is bringing this up is because he's pushing back on how not only culture, but how the religious viewed the law in his day. And you say, well, how so? Well, if you remember earlier in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says this about the law at the very beginning. He says, hey, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the idea of abolishing the law is a, a cultural idea. Jesus is addressing the bend that culture tends to go, not always, but tends to go, and that is towards abolishing God's laws. And the technical term for this is antinomianism. It means anti-law. And it's this. It's when we look at God's law, and we see it as cold. 
We see it as calloused. We see it as oppressive as far as our human flourishing as a society goes. We want to do away with it. And perhaps, church, some of you are here this morning and you fall more so in that category. You say, yeah, I am more so someone that sees God's law as cold. I see it as oppressive. I would prefer to do away with it rather than hold on to it. But the issue with that view of God's law is this. You are viewing God's law void of the lawgiver himself. Church, we must view God's law in light of our heavenly Father who loves us. Uh, This law, it's being told to you and me by Jesus, who loved us so much that he shed his blood for us. So there's no way that these laws could be oppressive. Consequently, though, on the other side is the religious spirit of Jesus' day and the scribes and Pharisees, and it's very much so the same spirit that's found in our day as well. And and Jesus, he has an uh, incident uh, um, interaction with the scribes and Pharisees in Mark 7, and he's condemning them for their way of working their way around the law, for their way of of trying to, to, to add to God's law. And he says this, you've left the commandments of God so that you could hold fast to the traditions of men. And church, I'll say this from my own heart, and I'm sure that probably some of you are like me where you fall into that category, you know? You think, yeah, God's law is good, but, but we need more of that. But we need to add to it. Maybe we even need to rewrite it a little bit for our day as well. And the problem with this view, though, is this. God's law is not enough to lead to human flourishing. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to do what religion always does, which says, hey, Jesus isn't enough, so we need to add to it. We need to continue to work towards progress apart from what God. Yeah, God, you got us this far, uh, but we need to go a little further now on our own. We think that we need to rewrite God's law if we're going to be a truly free people. And so all of this church, whether in the cultural direction of abolishing laws or the religious direction of adding to them, I believe is this at the heart of it. It's a lack of trust in our Heavenly Father that He really is as good as He says He is. That He really does, in fact, have our best interests in mind. Mercy Fellowship, this morning, do you trust your Heavenly Father? Do do you see Him giving this law to you and to me as a kindness towards us, helping to give direction to our lives? I've shared it from the stage before, but my dad died when I was younger, and I remember going through my teen years just kind of aimless, like like desiring direction of where I go and what I do. Uh, when Ruth and I started dating, I was like, man, how do I date? What do I do? You know, I was, I, I was struggling with that. And I had some older bosses that were like, hey, make sure you get her flowers. Make sure you take her out to dinner. And uh, I'm really grateful for those men who stepped up uh, as father figures in my life. But the psalmist, he says this, though, in line with what we're talking about. Psalm 119, verses 103 and 105. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's law, church, is a good thing meant for our direction. And so Jesus, he's our savior. He's our friend. He doesn't say that he's come to abolish the law. He's not antinomian. But he also doesn't say that he's come to add to the law. He's not religious. Rather, he has come to fulfill the law, meaning that it all points towards him. And I was thinking about this church as far as how maybe we could uh, try to explain it better. And when I think about the law, I kind of think about it as far as a sign goes, like street signs. 
Uh, when you come into Marysville, there's a sign that says, Welcome to Marysville. That sign is not Marysville. That sign points to the city of Marysville. In the same way, church, when we are following the law and we fail at doing it, it's meant to redirect our attention to one who has fulfilled it perfectly. It's meant to cast our eyes to Jesus. And as we look at him as one who has perfectly fulfilled it, on the other side of seeing him as our Savior and Lord comes then, okay, he, he can become an example for us. He had the Holy Spirit. Now we as followers of Jesus have the Holy Spirit. Now how do we follow it like him? And the example that he gives us of, of restoring this law of retaliation is this. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, church, I read that correctly. I don't know if, if that kind of throws you off. It doesn't say, hey, resist the evil one. It says, do not resist the one who is evil. I shared it a couple weeks ago, but I think it repeat, uh, bears repeating. Um, perhaps we don't understand Jesus as well as we think we do. So what is, what's he saying here? Uh, it's hard because in other places of, of the Bible, it's very clear we are meant to resist the devil and resist evil. So here's what I believe is being said in this section. God has set up structures such as government, police, and soldiers for suppressing evil, but when it comes to individuals, Jesus is saying, hey, we don't seek personal revenge when it comes to one another. A helpful tool I would like you guys to have in your tool bag when you're reading your Bible is allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. And the reason for that is this, that when we come to sections like this that are hard to understand, other parts of the Bible might bring clarity to it. It's a, the Bible's always referring to itself and speaking into itself. And the Apostle Paul, he says this in Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. He's talking about the marks of a Christian. What should a Christian be known for? And he says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he is thirsty, you give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Last verse, church, memorize it if you must. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Man, when it comes to like this idea of like personal vendettas and like and like you know turning the other cheek, it's it's so easy, right? If if someone gets you upset and they get you mad that you want to get after them, but you hurt them though, and then they come back and they hurt you. And then what happens then is this carousel of chaos where if you're gonna hurt me and I'll hurt you, and you're gonna hurt me and I'm gonna hurt you. And the apostle Paul's saying to you and me, hey, hey, you want to get rid of being possessed by evil? You you, you wanna fr be freed from that? Rather than being overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. And how do we do that? How do we overcome evil with good? We turn the other cheek. Church, Jesus is saying to you and to me, it would be better for us to turn the other cheek than seek revenge. It would be better for us to give to the one who is taking from us, to go farther with someone who has asked us to go, to give to the one who begs and never uh, refused to seek 
um, to borrow from us. There's a, there's a list that Jesus gives us here, and we could dig into each one individually and to be profitable, but for the sake of time, church, what all of these have in common is this. Uh, Jesus is prioritizing relenting over revenge. He's prioritizing seeking the common good over the destructive paths of evil. It's about pursuing character and holiness over chaos. And church, just so we're clear, there's certainly times where it's good to fight against evil and flee evil, right? Jesus, on numerous occasions, he had this scenario where they were seeking to stone him or seeking to throw him over a cliff, and and he fled those. So hear me on this. Jesus is not saying uh, that you can't self-defend. Jesus is not prohibiting self-defense. Rather, Jesus is giving us an example of how to overcome evil with good. And all of this church hinges upon how well do you and I understand the gospel? How well do we understand our own stories? Because prior to trusting Jesus, you rejected him more than once, and he didn't flee your rejection. Prior to you trusting in Jesus' church, you enjoyed all these good, wonderful gifts that this earth gives to us, and yet never gave thought to whom's hand they came from. Jesus, he turned the other cheek when you insulted him. Jesus, he's given more to you when you were taken from him. Jesus went further than anyone asked him to go for your soul, and Jesus gave to us as beggars and has never refused us once of his good gifts. Church, I need you to see this, and I really desire for you to see this. Do you see the great links with which Jesus has reached out for you? For you personally. In the law, we clearly see how we failed it, how we failed to obey it, obviously. And yet, at the same time, we see the love of Jesus perfectly in fulfilling it for us. And so where you and I have failed to obey these, Jesus has succeeded. And he succeeded for this purpose of of reconciling you and me to God, to our maker. You know, when I think about um, the abuse that Jesus faced, not only from us, but for us, um, the Apostle Peter, he talks about this in the same line. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, and it'll be up on the screen, I believe. And uh, let me get there. Peter, he says this, For to this church you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, the great judge, our God and Savior. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I don't think it's a far stretch, church, to say that since we have been healed by Jesus' wounds, it might be that the world gets healed by the wounds of Christians as we turn the other cheek. So Jesus, he restores the law of retaliation. And he continues to restore for us the law of loving our neighbor. Looking at the next law, that's right after it, the final one in this section. And he says this. He says, you've heard that it was said. You should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus right here, he's restoring this law of loving our neighbors. And he actually highlights in this one, unlike the last one, of how the religious have twisted this law in their day. And it became a phrase most likely in their day, where it's like, hey, hey, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. We have phrases like these in our day at church, where it's, you know, something like Black Lives Matter, or something like love is love. And these are phrases that you're meant to, to orient your life around. These are phrases that are supposed to help you structure your life. And so you're saying, hey, this is a good thing. We should do this. And so in Jesus' day, a good thing for them would have been to say, hey, yeah, love, love your neighbor, but, but hate your enemies. That's a good way to live your life. That's a good way to structure your life. And so this plays itself out, I believe, in a very real way for us in, cultural, in our culture today, right? Because think about this. Who's our enemy? Who's our enemy? We may never even use that language. We might be scared to use that language, but God's not scared of working our way to our hearts where we actually believe these things to be true. So who's our enemy? It's really easy right now to make an enemy of anyone who doesn't look like us. Really easy to make an enemy out of someone who doesn't agree with us. But beyond that, too, just on a cultural level, down to the personal, if you've been abused physically, there's an enemy right there. If you've been hurt and abused emotionally and spiritually, those are, those are enemies right there that we tend to, to swell up in our hearts. You know, church, a real and honest example for you uh, was about uh, beginning of June, uh, earlier in the month, you know, beginning of Pride Parade and stuff, uh, or Pride Month, I should say. You know, I, I was scrolling, I was doom scrolling on social media, which is, you know, never good for success. And I was doom scrolling on social media, and I was just getting so worked up. I was getting so upset with the things I was seeing, and I was getting so upset with the way people were living and encouraging people to live and telling children to live, and it made me so mad. And, and Ruth and I were sitting at the dinner table, and we ended up getting in a fight actually over this. And, and I said some pretty regrettable things, and, and Ruth told me, she said, if you ever say that from the pulpit, I will get up and walk out. It was that bad. And so I'm worked up, I'm, I'm ticked off, other words that I, I won't say from the pulpit. And so I ended up getting out and, and taking a walk. And as I'm praying, I'm just kind of fuming. I'm really upset. And uh, as I was praying to God, though, and just kind of processing what I was going through, what, what I found to be true is this. Um, as I go on social media and I get worked up and I get upset and I don't like what's going on, what I begin to do is I begin to dehumanize other image bearers of God. And as I begin to dehumanize other image bearers of God, consequently, I begin to deteriorate myself. I begin to become less Christ-like myself. At church, I, I kid you not, I go home repenting, upset, know I have to get ready to preach this Sunday, and I read this section of Scripture. Hey, you've been told to love your neighbor but hate your enemy, but I say love your enemy church in my heart i had made an enemy of these people I, I i don't hate people that aren't like me that's not what i'm saying but i had made an enemy of such people in my heart and jesus he actually talks about this very thing in the parable of the good samaritan 
I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it's so interesting how, how Scripture just speaks to us where we're at. I saw this in the parable of the Good Samaritan that I'd never seen before. A lawyer comes up to Jesus, and he says, hey, hey, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, okay, well, how do you interpret the law? And he says, well, the law says I should love the Lord uh, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor as myself. Jesus says, yep, you do that, you're going to live. Go ahead and do that. And it says, but the lawyer seeking to justify himself came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, quick question. Who's, who's my neighbor? And how subtle is the heart, church? How subtle is the heart to say, well, well technically, my neighbor's someone I agree with. Well, technically, if I, if I rewire it, perhaps my neighbor's just someone that lives in my same house. Well, well technically, and it can go on and on and on. And Jesus answers that. And I want us to take a look at it. He says this, verse 30 through 37. He says this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. A priest studies the law for a living. He gets paid to study the freaking law. He should know. And what does it say of him? When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Did he want to be on the same side of the street as him? So likewise, a Levite, a Levite works with the priests in the temple. They know the law. They've read it. They understand it. And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by him on the other side. But a Samaritan, someone who would have had generational pain and wounds and hurts from Jews, he saw him. He healed, uh, he saw him and he had compassion, it says. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This morning, Mercy Fellowship, who do you find in your heart you've made an enemy of? As Jesus commands us to, love them. Love them. Well, how so? How do we love them? Well, we love in word. And this does mean sometimes speaking the truth, but it needs to be speaking the truth in love. Uh, be reminded, at the beginning of John's gospel, he talks about Jesus who comes, and Jesus is coming full of grace and truth. And that means this, church, some of you are all truth, right? It's easy for you just to spit straight. It's easy for you just to say the right things when they need to be said. You know how to say it, and yet you lack grace. You lack compassion. You lack kindness, which, by the way, is not a weakness, but a fruit of the Spirit, on the other side, and I'd probably fall more so into this camp, is this. You're all grace. You're all kindness. You're all compassion. You want, you want people to like you. You're sympathetic. And yet, you often cower when it comes to saying the truth. And Jesus comes full of grace and truth. And we need to do so when we speak words to people who might disagree with us or even view us as enemies. We love in word. And sometimes, church, also loving in words, meaning we don't share what we think, right? You don't have to tell every person you disagree with that you disagree with them. 
I'm very much so guilty of this on social media. I, I need to take a break. We love indeed, right? We just read this from the Good Samaritan. We give food and drink and clothes and care to those with whom we disagree with. And something that Jesus highlights of how we can love people we disagree with, and I, I really appreciate it. He says we love in prayer. Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. And another way of translating that word persecute is saying one whom has caused you to suffer. Right? So as we're talking about vendettas and, and being upset from people who have hurt us, it's so easy for us to swell up with anger and with rage and to bring all of that to our Father in prayer. And 2 Corinthians 1, it says that, hey, when we pray to our Father, when we come to him, he will comfort us while we are in our affliction. All of this, church, it, it, you know, especially with cultural moments coming up, all of this kind of makes me think of recently with Roe v. Wade and what's happened with that, as far as, you know, the, the abortions being taken away from the federal level and now the decisions being made on a state level and how we should respond to that. I don't have much to say. If you're, if you're looking for someone who I 100% agree with, the AND campaign, A-N-D campaign, is someone I, I love their statement. I think it's so clear and so perfect and tones good as well. Uh, but, but here's what I would say for us. First off, it, it, I don't think it's wrong to celebrate. Uh, I don't want you to feel shame for celebrating. You know, this has been 50 years of, of children who have been murdered and that some children are going to live now because of that. So praise God for that, right? That's a great thing. That's something worthy of rejoicing for. 50 years, saints have been praying to God that he would change this, and God's answered those prayers. So praise God for that. That's fantastic. However, when it comes to our interactions with people who are pro-choice or people who, whom we, we might disagree with, and there would be a lot of animosity between the two, love them. Love them. And so hear me on this, church. We don't lay over in the face of evil. We seek to expose it, right? Speak the truth. But we also don't seek revenge on people we identify as our enemies. As followers of Jesus, we thread the needle of pursuing justice and righteousness while loving and giving mercy to those with whom we disagree with. I think that can be done, and I think, both, I think that's done very poorly um, in our world right now. So the reason and the purpose, church, we love our enemies. The reason we love people we disagree with is because Jesus says this, so that you might be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? Well, it means you have the, the family look of imitating your Father. And how has your Father loved us? The Apostle Paul, he reminds us of how God has loved us in saying this. In Romans 5, 8, he says, while you, were, um, while you were still sinners, okay, while you were enemies of God, while you didn't want God, Jesus shed his blood for you. Jesus died for you. We sing in church the, the song, In Tenderness, and that first line says, In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin. He didn't seek me in wrath. He didn't seek you in anger. He didn't seek you in hate. No, he sought you in tender, loving kindness. Uh, even the Apostle Paul, he says that the thing that changes us, church, the thing that, that causes us to repent is the kindness of God. I think somehow we've gotten this idea where it's like we just need to be aggressive, and if we just scream loud enough, people are going to change. You know, that, that, that doesn't work. We've been given a model here from Jesus of what real change looks like. And so let me conclude with this. 
We have these laws from our Heavenly Father. They're given for our flourishing, not our destruction. But here's the catch. How many of you this morning want to get up here and say, oh yeah, I've obeyed these laws really good. Thumbs up. How many of you want to come and say, I've loved my enemies real well? Oh yeah, I haven't sought retaliation or revenge on anyone. I've done really good at this. (laughs) Nobody. Nobody wants to come up and say that they've done this well. Nobody has obeyed these laws perfectly. We have all hated our enemies at one point. We've all sought retaliation at some point. And so in the law, church, we get this clear picture of our failures in obeying it, but we also have a clear picture of the love of Jesus and perfectly fulfilling it for us. So we don't come to Jesus with our good works, right? We don't have a sack of good works we bring. We have nothing. How do we come to God? We come to God as beggars empty-handed. And we come to God as beggars empty-handed by recognizing this, that we were the enemies of God who crucified him. That we're the ones who abused his kindness. And so we come as beggars with empty hands. And I like the, the, the song Rock of Ages, the old hymn. It has a line in it asking this question, hey, how do I come to Jesus? And he says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to that cross I cling. Naked this morning, you come to him for dress. Helpless this morning, you look to him for grace. Wretched we all are, and to his fountain must fly. Wash us, Savior, or we die. The good news, church, is this. You don't fulfill the law. Jesus does. And that's life-giving news for us. Let me pray for you.